Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. In today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Bentley. Stephen took part as an undercover detective during the mid-1970s in Operation Julie. This was a UK police investigation into the production of LSD by two drug rings. After a career in the police, Stephen went on to become a barrister, and he is now a successful writer of true crime and crime fiction. Hello and welcome to the show, Stephen. Well, thanks very much for the kind words and the kind introduction, Bob, and uh, I'm glad to be here. Nice to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Where are you based, Stephen? I know you're in the Far East somewhere. Yeah, these days I'm in the Philippines. I suppose you could classify that as the Far East. It's, it's, yeah, it can't go much further east until, uh, unless you land in uh, places like Guam and Australia. So, yeah, it is the Far East, I guess. Certainly yeah. in Asia anyway. Yeah, I'm in the Philippines. I've been here for the last seven years. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you on. Um, and I was thinking, before we talk about your story about working undercover in Operation Julie, could you please tell us about yourself and your life's journey and how you became an undercover police detective, please? Yes, uh, I'll give that a good go. Um, my life's journey started out in Accrington, Lancashire. Now, there's a thing anybody who listened to, uh, I think it was last week, uh, the episode last week with Quint Starkey, the musician, very very talented musician. Quint is also uh, an Accringtonian. But one of the big differences between Quint and I, besides the fact that I can't play anything apart from the pool, um, <laughs> you know, you know, Quint uh, lived uh, quite a bit of his life uh, until he was a, an adult, a um, young adult, uh, in Accrington, whereas I moved from Accrington at uh, 12 months of age, one year old. Uh, oh, well, right. I didn't move. My parents moved me. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. You uh, had we no choice to, in the matter. <laughs> I didn't have any choice in the matter. No. We went to live in uh, Heighton, Liverpool, yeah. uh, because my dad, after the war, had joined uh, the uh, what was then called Liverpool City Police. So one year old, I was dragged off to Heighton. I can't even say kicking and screaming because I don't remember anything about it at that particular time. Mm. And I lived there, went to school in Merseyside, uh, Prescott Grammar School, and uh, until I found work at, uh, I think I was 17 or 18 years of age. And the last thing that I wanted to do was become a policeman. Uh, my father was a police officer i say he was he's not with us anymore and he ended up as a chief superintendent in dorset after he left uh, liverpool city police and the last thing i wanted to be was a policeman i was i i even applied for a job as a, a littlewoods the anybody who's familiar with liverpool will know littlewoods uh, besides the pools they also ran a, a department store or, or possibly still do i don't know i've not been to liverpool for many years i even applied for a job as a department store manager with littlewoods and uh, yeah that, that i think demonstrates to anybody that you know the last thing that i wanted to do was was become a police officer i always anyway, remember the yeah sorry to interrupt i always remember the yeah. uh, the little the littlewoods catalog being popped through the door correct yeah there was the littlewoods catalog which was an extension <laughs> of selling all the goods that little was department store offered yeah that's right yeah. that was uh, that went to countrywide uk wide the little was catalog but anyway after a while and I, I you know i thought about work and what i was going to do uh, i stayed on and did uh, the first year of the two years of a levels but then i decided that i wanted to earn money and that was you know that was pressing on me that i need money to go and watch uh, my football team that i've always supported Liverpool Football Club and uh, yeah. and also girls were on the scene. I was 17. <laughs> so I needed money you know, to go out on dates and stuff like that. Um, so long story short, yeah, I then, then decided to join the police. I joined, uh, my father's advice was don't join Liverpool City Police. Perhaps he didn't want me near him or something. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I did. I joined Lancashire Police Force as a cadet initially. 
at 17 and at 19, or was I? No, 18, I think, as a cadet. And then at 19, I was old enough to be sworn as a police constable, did my uh, initial training at Bruce Warrington, uh, and then did my two years probation in uniform, first of all in the Manchester area, and then was transferred to Kirby, Liverpool, which was close to where I was brought up. And, um, uh, and I did two years in uniform, and then I was very lucky in many ways. Uh, I, I, w- I was on CID at 21 years of age. I was a real baby, wow. you know. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I did the CID course, the National Detective Training Course, and was on CID. Then I was on the Lakeshore Task Force as a detective investigating murders, very serious crimes. We roamed about the whole county investigating serious crimes yes yeah, was it an ambition of yours always to sort of be be a, you know in cid rather than just um well, i say just but doing a different job within the police like on the beat well yeah yeah not i wouldn't say always when i said earlier that uh i really didn't envisage myself being a police officer one of the reasons is that uh, i did never fancied dealing with uh, seriously injured people or dead people that are lying on the no. ground uh, as a result of a road traffic incident, accident, road traffic yeah. collision, as they call it these days. Uh, but funny enough, dead bodies, um, you know, in, in the morgue have never bothered me or at a no. crime scene have never, ever bothered me. It's a, a kind of a weird thing, I guess. But anyway, as soon as I did the two years in uniform, and had my feelings reinforced because I remember going to the scene of a, a traffic accident one day and a young girl in a, a print floral floral print dress, can even remember the dress that she was wearing. Very young girl was laying in the road by the bus stop and the bus had run over and killed her. And, and you know, it, it was a sight. It was, it was a nasty sight. And it reinforced all my feelings about, you know, I don't want to be a uniformed bobby. Mm-hmm. Certainly don't want to be a traffic copy, you know. So uh, it so happened that I was very good at sniffing out crime. So it didn't take me long for me to come to the attention of the CID. And, uh, you know, various detectives, various detectives, including one detective sergeant, encouraged me to uh, apply for the CID and apply for the course the national CID course, and that's what I did, and it was like a, a doctor water. I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and that was at twenty-one. I was at twenty-one. I was um, at twenty-one. I was on the CID at Kirby, and then I did a couple of years on the Lancashire Task Force, which was investigating serious crime all over Lancashire, not just on Merseyside. Of course, I have. I stress that you know this. This is in the days before there was such a thing as Merseyside Police. You know, yeah. the, the Lancashire Police covered right up to the Liverpool City Police area, uh, and you know, and covered most of Lancashire uh, before Merseyside and Greater Manchester were ever formed. Uh, the, you know, the counties of uh, were ever formed. So you know, I, yeah, I worked all over Lancashire, uh, and then after a couple of years on the task force, I ended up as. Uh, Oh, back on the CID, but at Crosby, which is, you know, north Liverpool, north of uh, Seaforth, um, yep. between Liverpool and Southport, for anybody that knows the area. Uh, yeah, a couple of years at Crosby. And then my old man uh, transferred to Dorset, and uh, I, um, I don't know, I guess it was feeling homesick or something. You know, I wanted to be closer, so I transferred to Hampshire. Oh, right. And that was in that was in 1971. Yeah. And because I transferred in from another force, even though I'd been on CID for all those years, I had to go through the whole rigmarole again of yeah. you know going back into uniform, and uh, and you know my 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 plan was to impress the local CID all over again and get on to CID as quickly as possible, which I did. I think I was in uniform for about a year, and then I got back into, when I say CID, it was actually plain clothes because some somebody in their wisdom at headquarters at Winchester decided I should go on the drug squad at Basingstoke. Oh, but right. it was that move on the drug squad to Basingstoke that led me to... Uh, 
being co-opted, being recruited onto um, Operation Julie. Because I hated the, the drug squad. The normal drug drug squad where I was based at Basingstoke, we used to cover yeah. the whole of Northern Hampshire, um, Basingstoke, Winchester, Andover, Farnborough, Aldershot, all those places. Yes. Uh, and, and I detested it, to be honest with you. It was like chasing people for a small amounts of cannabis and not really after the big dealers or anything like that which is uh, obviously that's where Operation Julie, Julie came this, into play. This would have been in the 1960s, would it, Steve? Yeah, uh, well, I've, I've encapsulated things uh, from 1966 when I first became a police constable to 1971 was my yeah. transfer to Hampshire. Yeah. 72, I was on, 72, 73, I was back in plain clothes on the Hampshire Drug Squad. And then 1976 was the start of Operation Julie. So I was yeah. on the drug squad for a couple of years before uh, I met um, I met Dick Lee, who was a Thames Valley detective inspector in charge of Thames Valley Drug Squad, which was the neighbouring police force to Hampshire. And yeah. uh, it was through Dick Lee that I got invited onto Operation Julie. And just before we talk about Operation Julie, which I'm, I'm very interested to hear, it's quite interesting that you got into drugs operations late 60s, early 70s, when there seemed to be, you know, the hippie stuff going on, psychedelics, the music and everything. That seemed to be like a, a sort of a new era of drugs, would you say? Yes, to a, to a large degree, I think that's right. I mean, the, uh, the heroin problem as we now know it and... Uh, the cocaine problem uh, hadn't really come onto the scene very much in in the UK in the sixties and seventies. Seventies, it was starting to cocaine was starting to come in, especially among those that could afford it. Uh, you know, it was obviously popular among uh, rock bands and so on and so forth. You know, that could afford yeah. to pay the, the high prices. But yeah, yeah. Uh, LSD. Uh, Acid was was coming through with um, the hippie movement uh, and all that sort of thing. It was all uh, things were starting to change, you know, and the, and the, and the music scene reflected that as well. With you know Bob Dylan and uh, Jimi Hendrix and all that sort of thing. All that marshmallow skies, marshmallow skies yeah. with the Beatles and, and all that. Yeah, sort that's of right. I remember. Yeah, I remember yeah. it as a kid, and, and I remember my parents yeah. making comments about it. Yeah, it just LSD, seems like a yeah, new era. LSD, Lucy yeah. in the sky with diamonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I won't attempt to sing it. <laughs> no, well, no, perhaps perhaps for another time, Steve. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> so then then you got um, invited to join Operation Julie. I did, yeah, after uh, making a nuisance of myself to uh, drug uh, users throughout northern Hampshire. Uh, yeah. I got a phone call one day, um, from actually from my uh, from my boss at uh, the drug squad in, in Winchester. It was from a guy called Pete, Pete Long, a detective inspector. Peter Long called me up and he said, Dick Lee wants to speak to you, he wants to meet up with you, what's going on? I said, I haven't got a clue, you tell me. He said, I can't tell you anything because I've been sworn to secrecy. It's some kind of big, big secret squirrel job and, uh, you know, nobody knows what's happening. And, uh, you know, are you going to go, if he calls you up, and are you going to go for the interview? And I said, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm curious. <laughs> so that's what happened. I uh, uh, Peter Long called me, gave me some warning that Dick Lee was going to call me. Um, basically, Dick Lee called me. We didn't discuss it at all over the phone. And he said, can you come to Devizes in Wiltshire uh, next week? Well, you know, one day next week. And I said, yeah, sure. So I went over to Devizes in Wiltshire to meet Dick Lee. And he spent about an hour laying out the, uh, the lay of the land, telling me what it was all about. And, uh, you know, basically the Thames Valley area, been uh, hosting the Reading Pop Festival for some time and um, you know at the Reading Festival uh, and the other festival in, in the Thames Valley area I think it was Watchfield the Watchfield uh, Festival yeah you know a, a lot of uh, a lot of LSD tablets have been uh, seized and were churning up on a frequent basis and it was Dick Lee's 
theory, he was absolutely convinced that there was a laboratory in Britain that was manufacturing the LSD. Well, that was um, that was news to a lot of people because most people, including you know the Home Office, the powers that be, they thought all the LSD that was churning up, that was being used, that was being seized in arrests and so on and so forth, they thought it was all being made in America, the West Coast of America, and being shipped all over the world from America. So, so what led him to, I mean, I, I was assuming at that point he didn't, he didn't have any evidence to suggest that? Or no, just a feeling no, 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 just, just, just intelligence, not, not, yeah. not so much just a feeling. It was a gut feeling when he, in relation to the tablets, in relation to the seizures, yeah. it was a gut feeling because of the quantity and the frequency that these were yeah. being manufactured in Britain as opposed to abroad. But then he started doing a bit of digging, and he, you know, Dick Lee was a lovely chap. Uh, I liked him immensely, and uh, dead now, of course. Uh, you probably gather from the way I speak about him. Yeah. But Dick Lee was, uh, you know, he he was cantankerous and obstinate and uh, very determined sort of character. He started digging around the cent- what was used to be called the Central Drugs Intelligence Unit at Scotland Yard in London. And eventually, through his, his doggedness, he, he found out that uh, there had been some intelligence on various players in the LSD distribution uh, field uh, in the UK. But not only that, he also eventually found out that there was an informant who was uh, being arrested in Canada. And uh, so, long story short, Eventually, Dick Lee got to the bottom of what the informants had to say. And this informant had been arrested in possession of a hell of a lot of drugs, and he was trying to do a, a plea deal so he could get a lenient sentence in Canada. Yeah. And uh, so he told the CDIU initially, not, he didn't see Dick Lee initially. He, he told the CDIU, the Central Drugs Intelligence Unit, initially. But yeah, he said all this LSD has been manufactured by in Britain. Now I can tell you who's who's making it. It's the, it's wow. the British British Microdot gang, and he he named uh, he named one of the major conspirators, and uh, he named the, another one of the major conspirators called, uh, but called him George, not his real name, which was mm. which was uh, Todd Henry Todd. But he named uh, he named Richard. Um, and what, what what was the name again? Did you say Microdot gang? Yeah, he called them the British Microdot Gang because were, right. the tablets were were microdots containing okay. uh, two hundred milligrams of uh, the active ingredient of LSD. And, yeah, uh, yeah, this was the stuff they were making, and it was them that were sh- making it in in Britain, manufacturing it in Britain, and shipping it all over the world, and not the other way around. So. Dick Lee eventually uh, persuaded the powers that be. The Home Office, uh, what was then called the Association of Chief Police Officers, to set up what was rather a unique um, task force. Uh, There were 25 detectives uh, plucked from 11 police forces in England and Wales. I was one of them, uh, Hampshire, a then Hampshire officer. There was another Hampshire officer, and there were various officers from various forces that formed the 25-man uh, squad that operated out of devices in in uh, in Wiltshire uh, for two years until the end of uh, Operation Julie. I was one of the four that were, actually worked undercover, and by yeah. undercover, Bob, it's often a it's often a word uh, that's uh, misused in my opinion. Uh, undercover isn't going and sitting in a caravan and taking photographs of suspects in a in a house mm. 300 no. 500 yards away i've done that that's surveillance yeah. work i've yeah. done a lot of surveillance work undercover is where you 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 change identity you are not yourself i was not steve bentley i became steve jackson this uh hippie type so you change you totally change your name and everything I changed my surname. I had a yeah. false driving license in the name of Jackson. 
I kept yeah. Steve, but I was called Steve Jackson, and uh, my undercover buddy Eric Wright became Eric Walker, and we had false driving licenses in those names, and yeah. uh, we had false criminal records in those names as well, uh, and false passports. So if anybody found our documentation, then it would uh, it would burn out who we said we were. Uh, yes. So yeah. Uh, of the two years on Operation Julie, uh, I was actually undercover in a village, very remote village called Handawi Brevi. I think I've done the Welsh pronunciation justice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, very remote village, surrounded by sheep and mountains, and that was one of the main one of the main targets. Lived there. A guy and and were, you, were you asked? Yeah, were, were you asked? To, do, to go properly undercover by by your, uh, yeah, your governor I, at that time. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was. Well, the governor, my governor at that time was Dick Lee. He, he was in yeah. charge of Operation Julie. Yeah. So therefore, hence he was my governor. I'd been on yeah. some surveillance work to start off with um, at uh, a pharmaceutical factory in North London, and also the uh, what turned out to be one of the manufacturing laboratories at the mansion in. Uh, Carno in mid Wales. I'd done this surveillance work first of all, and then the surveillance work wrapped up because they had wrapped up the production run at Carno, uh, and uh, we saw them disappear, including the American Arna Baldy. He disappeared. Yeah, he drove off in his mini moke and went back to his home in uh, Dea in uh, Mallorca. Um, so that was that was a wrap at Carno. So Dick Lee asked Eric and I to go in uh, separately to go in and see him. I'd never met Eric, although he was on the squad, on the on the Operation Julie squad. I'd never met Eric until Dick Lee called us in there that day. And Dick Lee laid out a scenario and asked us if we were okay with going undercover in this very remote village. He told us about the you know the target. The target was Alston. Uh, Alston Hughes, everybody knew him as Smiles. We had a, some intelligence on him. He'd been a dealer in Birmingham in London. And he was living with his wife and kids in this little cottage in uh, this remote village. And uh, in Dick Lee's words, we were to be Dick Lee's eyes and ears in that part okay. of rural ways, Wales. And, and did did we want to do it? I'll give you a few days to make your minds up. Well, we didn't wow. need a few days, you know. No, we we no. needed about an hour. We had a quick chat about it and said, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Bob, I was twenty nine. You know, the adrenaline, the adrenaline yeah. was going. You yeah, know, and this is wow. Yeah. This is you know, I've always wanted to work proper undercover work. You know, one of my heroes was Serpico. I love the movie, love the book. You know, <laughs> you know, I started developing the the beard and the hair just like Serpico. I was going to ask you about that. So the, the persona that you got into and the name and that was that something that Dick Lee suggested, or was it was it just no. the way that you you, you uh, decided between no. you how you were going to do it? Yeah, yeah. Eric was already pretty uh, rough and ready, shall I say? Yeah. I wouldn't say he was hippie looking, but no. What did what did Eric look like? He looked like a Viking, an extra from a Viking oh, film. Yeah, 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 this this shock of red hair, red yeah. beard. Yeah. Uh, so the following morning, you didn't bother with a shave, is what you're saying? Yeah, correct. Uh, the <laughs> following morning, for the next few weeks, the next few months, uh, yeah. in fact, uh, I think for the next year and a bit, I didn't bother shaving at all. So, no. uh, no. and uh, nor did I bother with a haircut. So, yeah, mm. changed my appearance completely. Went out and bought some old denims and made them dirty and deliberately cut them and scuffed them and. You know, my mother saw me once. Uh, I, I paid a quick visit uh, in my new persona, and my yes. mother was insistent on washing my dirty clothes. And I said, "No, mum." I said, "You can't. They're part of what I'm supposed to be." You know. Yeah. But even I, but I couldn't tell my mum or my dad anything about no, of what course I was not. doing. You know. Yeah. It's just that, but they they obviously knew from the way I looked yeah. that something. So how how fun. did it affect how did it affect your social circle? Um, were you married I, at the time, or did you have a partner? I I, I was I was married at the time, and yes. uh, the, the the my experiences in Operation Julie almost well yeah around about two years on Operation Julie and uh, living away from home all that time and uh, 
heavy drinking and, and, and using drugs, and that's a, you know another subject matter that you may yeah. wish to ask me about. You know, yeah. all these things changed me. I talk about a different persona. They did change me without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, it got to the stage where when I was home, we Eric and I, obviously to keep our sanity, we used to have to slip home every now and again, spend a couple of days at home. And when I was yeah. home, I was wishing to be back in uh, in Wales. Oh, you know, really? Because uh, yeah, because I felt more comfortable in Wales. I mean, you, you there, there was no social life for me. Uh, I was living in Basingstoke at that time, married. There was yeah. no social life for me in Basingstoke at my in my marital home. I couldn't go out and socialise. You know, my no. my appearance and probably my demeanour had changed so yeah. much that yeah. you know I couldn't. I couldn't uh, run the risk of people asking too many questions about what's going on. So my social life disappeared. I mean, I was a keen sportsman in those days. So, you know, my football and my cricket activities, they all stopped, disappeared. So going back to the bit when you sort of first went to Wales and tried to settle in, could you just tell us a bit about that, please, Steve? Yeah, the bit where we first went to Wales, we, we had a, an old, a battered old, transit van which dick lee bought for us or you know the police funds bought for us and uh yeah this whole battered van as eric and i looking like two hippies two rough and ready lads and we had a, a backstory as well that we uh, we dealt in uh, in cars used cars we went backwards and forwards to southampton car auctions bought and sold cars and eric was also Eric was a country boy. I was a city boy. Eric yeah. was a country boy, a Gloucestershire man. And he knew all about uh, the country. He, he knew all about animals. And, yes. and he, he was a dab hand with a chainsaw. So we always carried a chainsaw in the back of the van. So And that earned us a few bob, and it also was an excuse to get around and meet people. You know, uh, We did a few mm. furniture removals using the van, so the van came in very handy. But yeah, I mean, like anything else, if you if you move to a new neighborhood and you want a plumber, where'd you go? You go to the pub, don't you? So, yeah, you know, the, the, if we want to meet a drug dealer, we went to the pub. So we went to the local pub in Glendowie Brevet, and and the drug dealer wasn't there the first night, but we got speaking to the landlady, uh, and part of our backstory and cover story was that Eric's brother, uh, had disappeared he'd been in a minor scrape with the police he disappeared and was believed to be living in some hippie commune in that area so that was another that was part of our uh, oh you were trying to locate him we were trying to locate him yeah so anyway yeah yeah, we got talking to the landlady and kind of laid down our cover story but then the very next night we went to the same pub again and there were only two people in there and uh there was a long-haired black-haired guy long-haired sat on a, a stool and next to him was another guy sat on a stool and as soon as the black haired guy turned around and spoke i knew that was smiles because he was called smiles because of these teeth the dazzling smile yeah. and uh, as soon as i saw the teeth i knew and yeah i'd also seen photographs of it i knew this uh, this was him and it was him and uh, the other guy turned out to his to be his big mate a guy called buzz sadly passed away now uh, so um, smiles and buzz were there in the pub. Uh, the land—I think they were looking after the pub for a night or two nights because the landlord and the landlady had gone away for it. So he, you know, he was trusted to look after the pub. He lived across the road. Okay, um, yeah. So you know, we we ran out our, our backstories. We're out the whole story again to uh, smiles and and buzz and uh, and. You know, there was I, I, my distinct memory is that we didn't have a problem. Smiles is, is making other claims that he knew we were undercover cops immediately, which I, I, I've always found to be uh, a, a total load of BS. And uh, there are a number of reasons for that because the longer we were there, the closer we became to him. I mean, Eric even babysat for him, for Smiles and Smiles' wife. Uh, one night uh, in in the cottage that they were living in, he did the babysitting while Charles and I and a local another local guy 
and Smiles' wife, we went off and had this meal and, uh, in Lamperton, a Ch- uh, Chinese restaurant, I think it was. Anyway, a restaurant in Lamperton. Yeah, so uh, that's, where, that's where we first met him. So our, our time, and this was 1976, this was June 76. Pretty hot. 76 was one of the hottest summers on record. Yeah. in the UK and it was it was very hot and we found a place to sleep in the van uh, by a stream up in the mountains you know that kept us reasonably cool and we could wash in the mornings in the stream yeah uh, and we, we had a little primer stove so we cook up in the back of the van and cook ourselves a breakfast and then we take a drive higher up into the mountains and we go skinny dipping in the uh, where the stream came down <laughs> from the mountains it actually yeah. got you know, it, there was actually a rock pool much higher up oh, in the okay. mountains. Yeah, and yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, and it was like it was cold. But that was yeah. just what we needed. You know, in, in so you you lived moment. in the van rather rather. The story was that you lived in the van rather than sort of renting a house or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did initially rented the van initially until much yeah. later in the year when the weather turned, and uh, that's when we persuaded Dick Leith that we needed some money to to rent a place, and we did. We rented a. We rented a, a cottage in the same street as, uh, uh, smiles. as smiles. Yeah. yeah. When you sort of, I suppose, want, want for a better term, befriended smiles. How long did it take before the subject of drugs came up? Well, that's a good question. Because um, I guess you probably had to. So you you couldn't do it the first night. You had to wait a little. No, while. no, no. That's right. I would say. I'd, let me think about the period of time that was involved. I would say. After that night when we first met him, he he disappeared. We'd heard he'd gone off to Europe on some trip or other, which I believe was correct. And uh, so it's probably about four or five weeks later we saw Smiles again in the pub, and we got invited around to his home for the for the first time, and we ended up playing cards with him and a, a few of his friends, and so on and so forth. And that's where. Uh, the drugs came out, the cannabis came out, and it was it was a bong, a pipe, and uh, it's the first time I'd ever smoked from a pipe, and the, the hit from the pipe did me in. You know, I was yeah. I was hallucinating, and uh, it was quite a scary experience actually. But yeah. Um, yeah, that was the first occasion, and then the night we I mentioned in Lamberter at the uh, at the restaurant when Eric stayed indoors babysitting that was the first time that cocaine ever came out smiles produced some cocaine and uh, yeah, that was the first time that time i'd ever used that i was really worried about using it but i thought well you know what you do i can't That's quite say something under- isn't it yeah i can't say yeah. i'm an undercover copy you know no. i can't you i can't use cocaine it's a class a drug you know <laughs> it was class a drug then and it still is so i took it and uh yeah, I tell you. So yeah, it, but it took uh, it took a while. There was a lot of visits to Smiles' home and playing cards and this that, and the other, and uh, you know, a lot of sessions in the pub. And I got uh, I got very fr- I like the guy. I got very friendly with him, and uh, I felt yeah. quite close to him in the end. So you almost became a friend. Well, from my point of view, I considered him a friend. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I say that it's no secret, and we'll we'll undoubtedly discuss briefly uh, the subject of my books later. But uh, you know, one of the books I wrote is my memoir that is all about my Operation Julie days undercover of Operation Julie, and I make no bones about it. I I, I did consider him to be a close friend, and uh, I I. I, I I was torn in in two pieces when, uh, when uh, you know he was he was busted. He was arrested along with the others, uh, and there came a time where during the operation where we were sitting cross-legged and we'd had a lot of hash to smoke, and uh, you know I came very very close to, uh, to telling him who we were. Did I you? didn't, but I no. came very very no. close because I liked him that cool. much. Yeah. How did you feel throughout the whole? sort of undercover in, in yourself. How, I, I know you mentioned that you changed your demeanour and, and everything. Did you begin to almost think like this character that you sort of yeah, created? Yeah, I think so. I think so. My my my, my, uh, my persona changed completely. And at that yeah. particular time, I made a comment earlier, Bob, about being 29, adrenaline rush. You know, this was, this was exciting stuff. 
you know, and I, I was I was on a loose rein. In fact, there was no rein. I was totally free. Eric and I were totally free to do what the hell we wanted, you know, and, uh, you know, it was it, it was thrilling. It was exciting. And uh, we 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 didn't we didn't deal drugs, but we gave the impression that we would. And we were asked by more than one person, uh, could we supply them drugs? You know, we strung them along and so on and so forth. So, you know, the impression that we were trying to give clearly worked. So, you know, there is something, there's a, there's a thrill, there is something. And I can, I can, if you're related to espionage, because it is a type of espionage. And if you relate it to some famous spies, I dare say, if they were asked, they would say something similar, that there's a thrill to the deception to you know to to being involved in the grand deception there's a thrill to it an excitement you get a kick so, out of it so what part did you and eric play in the you obviously befriended smiles what part did you play in the actual drugs themselves did you get involved with the manufacturing the distribution no not at all um you know right. my uh, if you think back to my comments that uh, our brief was from Dick Lee was to be his eyes and ears on the ground in relation to smiles, yeah. and that's what we did. So you never got right uh, into what he was doing? No, and there was no – it wasn't necessary. No, number one, it wouldn't have been advisable because no. smiles was a very, very wary character. And for yeah. Eric and I to make any – to broach the subject of dealing, particularly in LSD, it would have been uh, would have been a bad move. Um, and not only that, Bob, but at that particular time, Dick Lee had managed to get a telephone tap on Smiles' telephone. So we were able to hear, or, you know, the opposite devices were able to listen into his telephone conversations, and some of those were revealing, and they revealed his dealing activities. Yeah. And I'll give you another example of the, the evidence that was found against him. It was, it was, glean from the telephone uh, tap that uh, he was going to be posting a package of drugs LSD to Birmingham and so um, the local postmaster was taken into our confidence by other members of the team, not us and uh, the package was retrieved, it was opened it was photographed, it was at parts of it with samples were taken it was analysed, turned out to be drugged Drugs. It was all resealed and then went on its merry way to to Birmingham, where it was uh, delivered to its intended recipient. So you know th there were various modes of gathering evidence against Smiles. We were we were infiltrators. We were there as intelligence gatherers, and yeah. part of part of infiltrating was being part of his circle and being friendly with him. You know, the only time that the only time that drugs were directly involved between Smiles and I was it was Christmas. Yeah, and uh, he knew we were he was going away for Christmas. I think he was going to Amsterdam. He knew we were going off, uh, getting out of the village for Christmas, and he came up to me. I was taking a leak in the toilet at the village pub, and uh, he came up to me, stood in the uh, cubicle next to me, and before he did so. He, uh, he took my hand off. I was a bit worried at first. I thought, oh, like, what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> but then he, he, he stuck something in my hand. I knew what it was instinctively. I opened my hand. I could see it was a block of fresh cannabis, probably about oh, an eighth right. of an ounce. So, yeah. you know, that's when he – and he said, happy Christmas. So I said, oh, thanks very much, man. You know, I mean, in those yeah. days, you know, I could, you know, in that persona, I, you know, I use the word man. Man. You know, yeah. yeah, okay, man, cool, man, yeah. So um, – <laughs> Yeah, that was that. And then we had a trip up to Liverpool too, Eric and I, through a character called Blue that we met uh, in the area. Blue was mm. a friend of Smiles. He was a friend with a lot of hippies. Blue took us up to Liverpool, and that's where we got introduced to a friend of his, a Canadian guy called Bill. And Bill offered us a cocaine deal to get involved in importing massive amounts of cocaine into the UK from uh, Bolivia via yeah. Miami. 
So this was a, an offshoot of Operation Julie. Now, Schmarz come only comes into this thing towards the end of our days in Klandawi Brevi in the village with Schmarz. Uh, Schmarz approached me because he'd heard on the grapevine about this episode up in Liverpool. He probably heard through Blue. So he said to me, we, funnily enough, we knew we, we knew through intelligence, through Dick Lee telling us that he'd been trying to score vast amounts of cocaine in London at that time. Smiles, yes. this is. So Smiles asked me in the pub, he said, I heard about the trip to Liverpool. Can I, are you in a position, can I score half a kilo of cocaine from you? So I, you know, I was kind of nodded and strung him along. Yeah. This, that, and the other stuff. But, but because we knew, Eric and I knew at that particular time, that any day now we were going to be pulled out of Clandowie Brevi because the time was very, very near to doing the nationwide bus that, you know, people were going to be arrested left, right and centre throughout the United Kingdom at the culmination of the operation, which is in fact what happened. Yeah, so there we are. Uh, so Eric and I left Clandowie Brevi. Oh, not before I threatened the local police officer. You threatened a local police officer. Yeah, he, did. he <laughs> obviously didn't know who I was. No, and I, I, I and I earned the nickname from Smiles of Cop Killer after that night. Really, I threat I threatened the local uniformed police officer in a place called Tregaron. It's close to Glendowie Brevi. Tregaron uh, is a market town, as you probably are aware. There are many market towns in England and Wales that allow drinking all day long. I'm talking about in the days of the old drinking laws and the lockings yeah when pubs used to uh shut in the morning open in the afternoon open oh, in the yeah. evening. but in yeah. a market town the pubs could stay open all day long you know so we'd been drinking in Tregaron, a market town all day long and then all evening and uh, so by the time that uh, the police constable in his uniform tried to get us to leave the pub I wasn't in the mood for it. I wanted to carry on drinking. <laughs> so right. I basically told him to stick his truncheon where the sun doesn't shine and offered him a lot of vile, and it was vile abuse, yeah. uh, vile language, bad language. And uh, then we left the pub, smiled, Eric and myself, and another guy I called Happy. And uh, all this is in the book. And we all ran to Happy's house. And we hid... Uh, the PC, the police constable, ch chased after us and uh, was waiting for us, but we hid until he left. And that's when Smiles, when we thought it was the coast was clear, we flicked the lights back on. Smiles pointed at me, laughed, and he said, Cop Killer. And that was my nickname from then on. <laughs> that's that's yeah. um, an interesting incident. Was, was that driven partly by you sort of defending your persona, your new persona as well? Partly. Partly yeah. through uh, playing up to my new persona, acting the part, and also uh, the fact that I was extremely drunk. <laughs> yeah, 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 we won't say any more about that. Um, so, so tell us about how how it all finished then for you in terms of you know you were dragged out and and what happened? Yeah, yeah, we 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 basically uh, I think it was a briefing at uh, Devizes. Dick Lee told us to you know, lay out, put a story around to allow us to disappear without questions being asked. So that's what we did. Yeah. I forget what the story was that we used now, but it doesn't matter anyway. But anyway, yeah. we did. So we're now in March 1978. Um, the, 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 the second laboratory has been identified in, uh, in uh, Greater London, Yeah, in Hampton Wick. So before the bus, I did about four weeks surveillance with others on uh, the Hampton Wick. It was a big detached house in Hampton Wick, and that was where Henry Todd was manufacturing his acid. Uh, um, Richard, uh, oh my goodness, how silly, I can't think of his surname. Uh, his name's in the book. <laughs> yeah. But Richard, uh, the other uh, LSD manufacturer, he... Uh, He'd been his last manufacturing run was in Carno, where we'd been actually watching him, but we decided to let him run. But we 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 went into that place in Carno after he vacated and found samples that confirmed that LSD had actually been manufactured there. So we knew there were two manufacturing facilities, 
and between those two manufacturing facilities and the and the and the network, the distribution network, and the distribution net network was massive. It was to the states, it was to Europe, all over England and Wales, to uh, Israel, to uh, Holland, to France. Uh, yeah, it was it was literally the product. You know, this this LSD was being was being shipped all over the world, and uh, yeah. there were some very uh, shady characters involved in it. You know, one of the myths about LSD and uh, Operation Jury, that, you know, they were a bunch of uh, hapless, innocent hippies, uh, doctors and research chemists, and some were doctors, some were research chemists, some yeah. were hapless hippies. But there were many, particularly the Americans, uh, like Arnaboldi, like Solomon. They were sinister. They were, really? they were, they were, they were more. They were businessmen in in the, in the yeah. drugs world, and uh, you know they both had links to Timothy Leary and uh, right back to the Merry Pranksters and Millbrook in in the states. Anybody who knows the history of LSD knows what I'm talking about. These are very violent but, people. Yeah, well, it's funny you should say violent. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that either either any of them mm. that I've mentioned were particularly violent people per se. In other words, I can't right. see them dishing it out. No, but they certainly had the contacts and the wherewithal to. Uh, I, I mean, they they. they the informant in Canada, whose whose name's come back to me now, was Jerry Thomas. I mean, he was threatened by, by Richard, uh, the English Richard, and yeah. uh, the manufacturer, and uh, and Solomon, the American. He he was threatened after Solomon and uh, and and Richard had been uh, had been arrested and were in custody. So right. you know they they were capable of violence. Some of them, not all of them, but. Uh, uh, you know, I'll make it clear. I don't think Smiles was. I, I, I never. I, I was never frightened of violent violence when I was undercover. I, I was more frightened of the unknown. It was the unknown. You know, what, what am I going into? It's yeah, the unknown yeah. that worries you, frightens you. Yeah. But I was never frightened per se. I mean, even I mean, Smiles challenged us on a couple of occasions about being undercover cops and uh, just laughed it off. And uh, but I never. I didn't feel frightened because I think he was. You know, my gut feeling was, and I'm sure I'm right, but he was just, he was, that's the, that's the kind of guy he was. He liked to yeah. press buttons. He liked to take you by surprise to see if you'd slip up or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He, he's a, he's a lawbreaker. He's living on his wits. He, you know, we were, we were on his patch. So these challenges that he made every now and again were, were understandable. Um, but I don't accept his claim, his now claim. That he knew from day one that we were, and you know, it, it's uh, the wings of high security prisons are full of people who claim the same thing. Well, I always knew he was an undercover cop. Blah 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 blah. blah. Yeah. BS. <laughs> yeah. When did you first hear that he he him smiles had been arrested? I uh, Eric and I were in on the raid on the on the house in Hampton Wick, the manufacturing uh, facility, the, London the house in London. Yeah. 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 And we drove back to uh, Swindon because devices wasn't being used to lock people up. Swindon Police Station was being used now. So we drove all the way to Swindon and uh, deposited. Our, we were all assigned uh, somebody to arrest. And in police parlance, they're called a prisoner. So we deposited our prisoners after booking them in at, uh, at Swindon Police Station. And it's... Yeah. Probably the day after that, I oh, I cut myself. I went to uh, Saint uh, Princess Margaret's Hospital. Like, that's right. Yeah, I cut myself. So I spent a couple of hours in A and E, talking to oh, no. pretty nurses, having <laughs> my finger <laughs> stitch. And um, yeah, uh, so it was the day after when I first learnt that uh, Smiles was uh, in custody at Swindon, and that's when I spoke to Dick Lee because I had this. Thing in my head that I, I desperately wanted to see uh, smiles 
you know. Uh, you you what you felt it. you felt you owed it to him to, to yeah. Sort of tell I, him. I really wanted to have a quick word with him. Uh, I yeah. was worried. I was a bit frightened how he'd react. Yeah, but I okay. wanted to get this out of my system to go and see him, and that's what I did. I went to see him. You went to see him. I went. I cleaned up a little bit. I still had the. I still had the uh, full beard and hair was shoulder length. I looked more like a South American drug dealer now than, <laughs> than a, a hippie. Yeah. And Schmars looked at me for a split second, a second or two, thinking, what the hell is this cocaine dealer doing in my cell? It's nothing to do with acid and Operation Julie. And then yeah. the penny dropped and we hugged and I, I, I oh, teared really? up. Yeah, well, I, I teared up and I, I said to him, "I have no hard feelings, man." And he said something like, "Well, it's all part. Of, it's all part of the game. It's all in the game." Something really? like that, and that was it. Turned on my wow. heels and left him. And the next time I saw him was when he was sentenced. I saw him at Bristol Crown Court. Uh, when was that? Yeah, the year after, nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, yeah, sorry, the arrests were in 77. The sentencing was in 78. Uh, so I saw him in 78 and uh, a Bristol Crown Court when he was sentenced to eight years. And the main players got 13 years. Yeah, so that was the end of uh, yeah. Operation Julie for me. So and, uh, what happened after turning that? Point you... to... Sorry. Well, yeah, yeah. Got... Sorry, Bob, that was... I... I uh, anticipated the question, what am I? Oh, right. Uh, yeah, you know what I was going yeah, to ask. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, yeah. I had a feeling. Um, yeah, well, basically what happened was that I went back to my home, Force Hampshire, and uh, somebody in their wisdom decided that I was to uh, go to divisional CID, which would, in the normal run of things, would have been fine, but it was a place called Tadley near Aldermaston, the Atomic Weapons Research oh, yeah. Establishment. Now, yeah. Tadley has got lots of cams and fields surrounding a few small housing estates, and it was for, for a detective of my experience, and I'm not talking just Operation Julie, I'm talking about it prior to that, was just absolutely boring, utterly boring. And... Uh, you know, I I got to a stage with thinking about the job as a whole. Do I want to carry on doing it? And uh, my marriage broke down. I met another lady and I went to live with her. And I got so much hassle from the police force in that in those days. Because in those days, would you believe it? That I went living with another woman who was a married woman. And technically, I was still a married man because we hadn't got divorces yet. And uh, the police force in those days said, oh, you can't live with her. And they, they uh, oh, I'd got a promotion to detective sergeant by this time. But they, they said, Are you, no, we're going to move you from Farnborough, Hampshire. I was a detective sergeant at Farnborough. We're going to move you to Southampton in uniform as a uniform sergeant. So basically saying, well, you can't live with her. They're dictating to me who, who I can live with and where I can live. And also taking away my uh, my detective detective C is that a word? <laughs> yeah, it could know. be. Yeah, I've just I've um, just made it up. So yeah, yeah, that was the final straw, Bob. I, I'd, yeah. I, I'd had enough. Uh, I'd done fourteen years in the police force. Yeah, that was it. I quit. One quick one question I've got, and I'm sure listeners would be very interested, is you know you've, you've lived this life for almost two years as, as a different character. Um, different persona yeah. you're now going back to Stephen Bentley what was the transition like how had you changed transition was very very difficult uh, I think a lot of Steve Jackson stayed with me for many many years I became a little bit irresponsible and uh, uh, very impulsive and uh, was very couldn't just couldn't uh, deal with having reins attached to me again. You remember that phrase I came yeah. out with earlier? You know, the reins were off, but there were no reins then. And, uh, I just found it very, very difficult indeed. Extremely difficult. Uh, I was I was depressed, clinically depressed. Well, it was, it was diagnosed as clinical depression. I've since come to find out that it was probably it was probably uh, 
with dissociative identity disorder. You were, you know, I've been living the life of somebody else for a good while, and then yeah. I'm trying to live a normal life, inverted commas, whatever that means. So I was in a bad way. I was in a bad way, and I was drinking heavily, and you know, still using drugs too, which of course I shouldn't have been. As part of the debriefing, did did you get any any <laughs> support at all? Did you say debriefing? Sorry, yeah, was was there a debriefing? <laughs> there was no debriefing. That was no debriefing. No debriefing. Support? No support. No support. No debriefing. No no training. Going back to the beginning of the undercover yeah. operation, no undercover yeah. training in those days. Not like now. But once I come out of the police force, uh, as most coppers and ex coppers tend to call it, the job. Once I come out of the job, you know there was. Uh, there was no debriefing, no support, nothing whatsoever. With with the I think with the right, with the benefit of hindsight, with the right support, I probably would have seen sense, uh, even if it had been only from a financial point of view. You know, well, I've done fourteen. I've only got to do another eleven years, and I, you know, I can get a pension, a reasonable pension. You know, and and also, I mean, my my appraisals were coming in. I was then a DS detective sergeant. And I'd seen my appraisals and the bosses were talking about me as being a DI in the near future. So I would have thinking, you know, if I'd have stayed for another 11 years minimum, without any, without blowing my own trumpet, you'd have been talking about Detective Chief Inspector Bentley, I think, without a shadow of a doubt, almost certainly. Um, I mean, you've obviously trained to be a barrister after that and everything, so you've done quite a lot. And- well, I did, Bob, because the thing is with me, you know, there's no point in... No point in, uh, in crying over spilt milk. What's done is done and dusted, you know. And and I, I've done fairly well over the years at reinventing myself. So, so yeah, I'm out of the police force. Uh, I didn't have a job. Uh, the first job interview I went for, I had to walk from Farnborough to Aldershot, which is about what I don't know, four miles. I didn't get the job, so I had to walk back again. I uh, didn't have any money for the bus, didn't have a car or anything like that. And, uh, you know, but eventually I got a job. I, I, I fell into selling and then uh, into sales management, business to business. Yeah. And then various other things over the years uh, before I became a barrister. What made you become a barrister, Stephen? Uh, long story short, Bob, it's a very good question. Uh, and I could spend a long time explaining but uh, as I say long story short as a young police officer young detective I saw barristers in action in uh, crown courts and quarter sessions as well as they were called back in my day in Liverpool and uh, uh, that would be in the 60s and early 70s and I thought yeah I could do that job if I ever needed to and then later in life I found that I did need to because after Operation Julie in uh, 1980, I, I resigned from the police force. I, I went and did a went into a sales career for about 10 years, but that was in the construction industry. So I went back to college basically and got a law degree, and then wow, and then and then to bar school and qualified as a barrister and practiced criminal law for 14 years. That's that's great. And what type of um, stuff did you do as a barrister? Mainly criminal law, the occasional yeah. bit of uh, employment law, but not much. Mainly criminal law, mainly defending, some prosecuting. I dealt with cases of murder, rape, drug importation, you know, the usual, uh, run, run, say, run-of-the-mill. Sadly yeah. to say, in this day and age, it is run-of-the-mill, you know, all the serious crimes, really, and, and mostly in front of juries. Yes, yeah. And then, and then you became, decided to become a writer. I did. I did. I had this story in my head about Operation Julie, about my undercover experiences. And yeah. I had the story in my head for many, many, many years. And then I left the bar. I, 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 in fact, I stopped working and retired, traveled the world a little bit, and uh, settled down with my now partner in, uh, in the Philippines. And she encouraged me to get the story out of my head and onto paper. And in 2015, I started to write it. And in 2017, it was published. So uh, that was my 
first serious book, as it were. Um, and that's all about Operation Julie. And that's all about my undercover days on Operation Julie yeah, back in yeah. the 70s. That sounds like a great book to read. Well, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and can you tell us about your other book since then, please? Yeah, I, I, I've, uh, I think I'm now up to, uh, I think it's about 15 books. There are, there are three or four non-fiction books, which are all about undercover policing. Yeah, I, I think I've developed a little bit of a reputation of the go-to man for uh, for former undercover officers who want to tell a story about their days undercover policing. So I've now got some books out, non-fiction about undercover policing. There's my own book. There's a book called Operation George. There's a book called Undercover Legends, and they're non-fiction, but they're highly interesting. They're all about amazing things that undercover officers get up to. And yeah. uh, especially in the modern modern age, and uh, I've also written quite a number of crime fiction books as well. And how do you, how do you find the difference between sort of writing fiction and non-fiction? <laughs> yeah, again, a very good question. Fiction's more fun because yeah. I've got a license to license to tell lies, basically. And, and do you do you sort of? <laughs> Uh, do you do you sort of design it as you go along the the plot, or do you have an idea? No, I'm like... very much a plotter. I'm not. Uh, yeah. the, the writing world are divided into into plotters and pensters. Pensters writing by the seats of their pants. They make it up yes. as they go along. I'm very much a plotter. I plot it all out, have an outline, and then uh, start from chapter one and, and finish at chapter forty or whatever it is. And do you find the um, actual sort of writing out the plot? Do you find that quite difficult? Not now, uh, because I've developed techniques over the years. I mean, at first, I mean, like everything in life, you know, you start something new and you go through a learning curve, and then you, having gone through the learning curve, you discover the uh, the shortcuts or, or the ways that work for you. Yes. So it's a lot easier now than it used to be. And if, you, if if there's somebody, if we've got a listener out there who is um, perhaps sort of thinking they've got a book inside them and they and they like to write a book, but they're daunted by the prospect, what what sort of advice would you give them? Yeah, just get on the internet and start googling stuff like uh, how to write a novel, uh, presuming that they want to write a, a fiction book. Uh, how to write a novel, and the internet is uh, is chock full of, uh, of free content. And some of it is very good content. Just because it's free doesn't mean to say it's rubbish. I mean, you can pay thousands of pounds for uh, for paid courses uh, to how to write books, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I don't advise it. You can you can learn an awful lot by uh, by uh, using free resources on the internet. And one in particular that I would recommend is an American woman called K. M. Whelan. K. M. Whelan. Yeah. Yeah. K M. Uh, oh, K M. Sorry. K, yeah. K for Katie. Yeah. M for whatever. I'm not sure. But Whelan, and it's spelled W E I L A N D. Yeah. And uh, she is very, very good. Uh, okay. Well, we'll put a link to her on the on the show okay. notes. Okay. Very good. And what other projects do you have coming up, Steve? Right at this moment, I'm writing my very first cozy mystery. A lot cozy of my crime fiction has been pretty hard boiled. Yeah. Uh, plenty of action and thunder and blood and guns and murders and some quite steamy sex scenes. But this is my first attempt at writing cosy mystery. And it's set in Liverpool, a city that I grew up in. And it's set in the 1920s. And uh, oh, right. the provisional working title is uh, uh, The Docker's Umbrella. And, and anybody who knows Liverpool intimately will know what the Docker's umbrella was. And for those that don't know, it was the electrified overhead railway that joined up the, the docks in the south of Liverpool to the docks up in almost in Seaforth to the north of Liverpool at one time, but it was all demolished in uh, in uh, the mid-1950s. But I was lucky enough to have a ride on it. My father took me on it when I was probably aged about five, and I, I distinctly remember it. And yeah. it's kind of inspired me to write this cosy mystery set in Liverpool in uh, in the 1920s. Oh, that that sounds that's really yeah. Interesting. Look how, out for how, it. It should yeah. be published later this year. So oh, well, please look, look, look out, out for, for it. Yeah, yeah, look out for that. And and if people would like to find out a bit more about your work, Stephen, where should they go? Well, they can either look me up on Amazon, and Stephen is spelt with a P H, 
and Bentley is spelled like the motor car. Or they can look me up on my website, which is www.stephen, again, P-H, Bentley, all one word, Stephen Bentley, B-E-N-T-L-E-Y, dot info. So either of those two places will oh, well, thank, uh, thanks very much. find out lots about me. Stephen, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, okay, thank great. You, thank you again for coming on to the show. My pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, cheers. Cheers. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I would be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best.